Well, thank you, Andrew, for your testimony. We're exalting the Lord through your words and through your life. Look forward to seeing you grow uh, continually as a man of God and give him glory and honor. Thank you, Mike, for praying and reading the scriptures for us. Well, uh, just a brief uh, report of encouragement to all of you. This past week, my wife and I and our two daughters just came back from <clears throat> a retreat at uh, UC San Diego uh, Crossroads Campus Ministry. One of our members, Stephen Hong, he used to be one of our youngest members, is now um, serving as a leader of that campus ministry. He asked uh, me to come and um, minister God's word at this retreat. And he's doing a, just a great job, fantastic job of, of leading, serving, and just shepherding the saints there. Um, I sensed uh, in my heart just great pride and joy to see him um, grow in the Lord and to be effectively used for the Lord in that way. It was kind of like Second Timothy 2.2. Unknowingly, I entrusted to him the Word of God and he turned out to be a reliable man unknowingly and he's faithfully uh, passing that Word on to others. He asked me to come to preach uh, and asked me to hold nothing back. So I gave him, I gave them my, all my difficult sermons and they wore me out. I gave five sermons and one Q&A in three days. And my wife, not only took, took care of me and two daughters, but she also gave a sermon and did a Q&A as well. And so, you know, we're wiped out this week. <laughs> Physically, even so much emotionally wiped out. But spiritually, we come back uh, really encouraged, really encouraged by what God is doing in UC San Diego. If you... No, Stephen, please be in prayer for him. <clears throat> First night I gave the message and he came up afterwards and started just weeping. I shared his heart for Christ and praying for the saints there. started crying. And then I had a men's session and I really challenged the men, especially on this video game, like, you know, craze of sweeping the, the nation. I told them, you know, what I tell you guys all the time, 12-year-old playing video games, Okay, that's good. You know, play video game. 16-year-old, okay. You know, getting a little old now. You know, 18, 25-year-old playing video games. Like, you know, so I really, really just kind of hammered them home. And they were all like laughing in the beginning and after a while they were all like <laughs> repenting on their knees and like burning their Xboxes right there. I guess they brought it with them or something. But Steve was showing it after that and crying, really weeping saying so burdened for the men in that ministry, so burdened that they're not growing as men, they're still boys, and they don't have a man-on-man relationship because they're boys. And he was just sharing his heart. And just to see that, see that kind of passion and heart in a young man, come back really, really refreshed, really encouraged, and ask you to be in prayer for him. On this Resurrection Sunday, I am pressed to go to Calvary. I am pressed to go to the place of the skull. I know it is Resurrection Sunday, but you know how if you're in Europe, you want to go to uh, Normandy and where D-Day occurred just to see the place where so many lost their lives. If you're in the Pacific Ocean, maybe you want to go to Iwo Jima and see where thousands of Marines gave, paid the ultimate price to defend our nation. If you're on the East Coast, maybe you want to go to Gettysburg and see the place where uh, this battle occurred and men spilled blood. Well, likewise, in the same, for the same reasons, I want to go to Calvary and look again at Matthew 27 and see the place where our Lord paid the ultimate price to glorify the Father and to pay for our sins. And amazingly, although it was the culmination of the redemptive history, literally the hinge, the turning point of history, yet 2,000 years ago on that divinely appointed day, almost everyone was blind to the monumental significance of our Lord's resurrection. For almost everybody there, they had no idea anything special was going on. Everybody that was gathered for them was another day. Nothing special. Nothing different. The sight of people being crucified was a common sight during those, time, during, during those days. 
Uh, historians tell us that by the time of our Lord's death, the Roman government had crucified over 30,000 Jews in and around Jerusalem. It was the Roman government's way of telling the people, don't mess with our laws. We're not kidding around. We're not telling jokes. It's not a game. You rob, you steal, you murder. And if you dare go against the nation of Rome, our government, this is what you will incur. Don't mess around with us. So it was a public, humiliating mode of death as a warning to all to keep their laws. And so on that fateful day, it was a normal crucifixion from... 9 a.m. to 12 noon, Calvary was a very busy place, but there was nothing extraordinary. A common sight of two robbers and one delusional, delusional man claiming to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews, um, dying on the cross, it was nothing special. The soldiers performed their various tasks. The bypasses blasphemed. The chief priests, scribes, the elders of Israel insulted Christ. And even the robbers joined in and mocking the Lord. They had no idea what was happening. They had no idea of the great importance of the cross and the redemptive history of God. When Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3 and sinned into the world and death came to all men, therefore all men die. Our Lord, our God prophesied in Genesis 3.15, Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel, that you will crush his head, he will strike at his heel, but he will crush your head, that the Messiah will come and destroy Satan, will be victorious. God promised this in Genesis 3. And we see that common thread throughout the Old Testament, culminating here on Calvary. And yet, even the experts of the law, these men who had memorized the book of Genesis, they were blind to what was happening. The question that we ask is, well, did God notice? Where was God? How can just God be silent at the death of His only Son whom He loved? How is that possible? How could a father be so cold and heartless to see his only son die this cruel death and yet not intervene, not act, not cry out. Why didn't God do something? Why didn't God act? Well, from our passage this morning in Matthew 27, we discover that God was not silent, that God did intervene. He did incredible things at Calvary. He stretched forth His arms. He suspended natural law. And He divinely performed six miracles. Starting at high noon, everything changed. It was no longer a typical crucifixion. It was no longer normal. God performed six distinct miracles. I mean, just for so many reasons. But probably the most important reason being to relate to us His perspective on the Lord's death. It's His commentary. He is giving apocalypse. He's unveiling His view, His perspective on the death of Jesus Christ. God was making statements through these miracles. Reveal. They reveal God's response to the death of His only Son. So the outline is very simple. Six miracles surrounding the death of Christ. The first miracle is found in verse 45. And it is the miracle of supernatural darkness. Supernatural darkness. Verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. Sixth hour is high noon. Ninth hour is 3 p.m. Matthew says the darkness came over all the land. When our Lord was born, remember that in Luke chapter 1, the night sky around Bethlehem was filled with supernatural light. His birth was accompanied by radiant light. Luke 2.9 also says that the glory of the Lord radiated around the shepherds in the fields when the day on the eve of Christ's birth. Why? Because John 1 tells us 
that light has come into the world. He is the light of all men. John 14.1, Christ says, I am the light of the world. If anyone follows me, he will not walk in darkness. And yet, the day of his death, what accompanied Christ was not light, but darkness. Darkness came over all the land. We're not, you can't be certain if this darkness is definitely supernatural darkness. It is not a dark cloud, you know, uh, passing over the sun. It's not a solar eclipse. It is a supernatural divine darkness. What we're not sure is uh, the scope of this darkness. Is it localized just on Calvary? Is it just in Jerusalem? Is it just around Israel? Is it around the whole earth? We're not certain because the land is just the word land, gay in the Greek. And it could mean any of those things. We're not sure. I mean, I, I, would, be, I would say that it's the whole earth. Darkness covered all the land. We're not certain, but we can know the meaning of this darkness. This, the, what, what God meant, what God signified by this darkness, there is an important reason behind this miracle. In the Old Testament, darkness covering the sun is a sign of one thing and one thing alone. The Israelites knew this. I mean, they, they woke up every morning looking at the sun. And they knew if they ever woke up and they saw the sun was covered in darkness, they knew. It, signed, it was a signal of God's judgment, of God's wrath, of God's fierce anger being carried out. Isaiah talked about this in Isaiah 5.30. On that day of the Lord, on that dreadful day of the judgment of God, when one looks at the land, he will see darkness and distress. Isaiah 13.10-11, the stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Prophet Joel wrote about this in Joel 2. 1 and 2, and verse 31. Joel 2, 1 and 2, and verse 31. Joel said, Blow the trumpet in Zion. Give warning. Sound the alarm. Wake everyone up. Let all who live in the land tremble. The day of the Lord is coming. It is a day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and blackness. And in verse 31, The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Amos 5.20 reiterated, Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light? Pitch black without a ray of brightness? So on high noon, when the sun should be at its brightest, the day our Lord was crucified, there was supernatural darkness Signaling God's judgment. The question now then is, who is God angry at? God's judgment upon whom? Nation of Israel? These uh, corrupt leaders of false religion who think that religion is a means to financial gain? For them, it's all about them and their authority and their position and their titles. And they're using religion to benefit them. And when their false religion is exposed as wickedness and evil as it is, they respond not in utter humility and brokenness. They respond by murdering God's Son. And God sees that and He is so angry. He is so irked that He cannot withhold His judgment. So He covers the Son to signal judgment against the nation of Israel. Is that what's happening here? Or is it the judgment against the Roman government? Pontius Pilate, who had the right and the authority to release this man. And even Pilate said, this man has done nothing worthy of death. He even concluded, after a trial, this man is innocent. But because he feared man, he didn't stand up against injustice. And he went along with the flow and allowed an innocent man to be murdered and crucified? Is it against him? Is it against the Roman government? Or is God angry at the soldiers, these wicked, evil men, who spat upon his son, slapped him, punched him, and cried out, Who 
who hit you? It's God judging these men who put a crown of thorns on his head and as he was writhing in agony, they were laughing and having a good time, celebrating, putting on a, a robe on him and, and mockingly worshipping him and they now crucified him and hanging him on a tree. Is God signaling his judgment against these Roman soldiers? The answer is no to all the above. Their judgment is still to come. Their judgment is still future. As sure as it is day, God will judge all evil, all sin, wickedness. God will not be mocked, but God is not signaling His anger against them. This darkness in Matthew 27.45 signaled God's judgment upon Jesus Christ. God's judgment upon His only Son. Our Savior became the focus of God's judgment. For the first time, and the only time, God was angry with His Son. God was enraged. God the Father had holy wrath against His only Son. So we can say that hell came to Calvary on that day. Now why is that? Why is God angry at His Son? Well, you see, on the cross... Jesus bore in His body all of our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that He who knew no sin, knew no sin, became sin for us. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This substitution took place on Calvary. Christ was sinless and perfect, embodied, became sin so that we who believe might receive His righteousness. Therefore, on the cross, all our pride, our impurity, immorality, our jealousy, our envy, our hatred, our rape, lies, theft, stealing, murder, all of it was put upon Him. On that day, Christ our Lord became the object of God's wrath, God's divine judgment, and therefore the supernatural darkness signaled God's judgment against His Son. In one word, for three hours, our Lord experienced the most intense agony, indescribable woe, unbearable isolation again. In one word, He experienced hell on Calvary. It must have been unspeakably terrible, the pain and agony endured, the spiritual agony, because... You know, if you know the Gospels, if you know Christ, you know He had a tender heart. He was meek as a lamb. He was like a child. He was an innocent child in a, in a depraved, wicked world. And he, he came to this earth because for the glory of the Father, because He loved the Father. His highest desire was to please Him. He loved Him as His own. And for such a tender soul meek Lamb of God to experience such anger must have been horrible. And at 3 p.m., our Lord raised His voice. Matthew says that He cried out in a loud voice. He screamed it out. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Verse 46, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here is the second miracle. Divine separation. Divine separation. Now, Old Testament Psalms didn't have chapters, chapter numbers before it. You would quote a chapter of the Psalms by quoting the first verse. So by him doing this, he's quoting Psalm 22. Psalm 22. A Psalm of David that he had written hundreds of years ago that prophesied, that predicted about the coming Messiah, all the Jews that were present knew Psalm 22. And our Lord cried this chapter out. It was quoting from this chapter. Let me read to you some verses, some excerpts from Psalm 22. If you want to turn there, uh, please go ahead. Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These verses describe the spiritual agony, the, the visceral experience that our Lord is experiencing. 
Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, and you are silent. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast my lots for my clothing. He is more than quoting Psalm 22. He is experiencing the fulfillment of that psalm on the cross. And then he cries out what he experienced. At that moment, divine separation. He experienced God the Father forsaking him, casting him aside. He saw his Father turn his face away from him in disgust and leave him alone on the cross. And the question again now is, why did God forsake His only Son? Why did God do that? Well, the reason is, abandonment is an integral part of judgment. That's what makes judgment so horrible. Right? That's, that's what makes hell, hell. What's hell? That's where God's grace, mercy, presence doesn't abide. A central part of being judged is that you're cast aside. You're forsaken. God abandoned His Son because on the cross our sins were fully laid upon Him and our God is a thrice holy God. Isaiah 6, Revelation 4. God who was per- pure and perfect in all His ways. And Habakkuk 1.13 said that your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Because God is holy, He cannot tolerate sin. And because Christ became sin, God only has one response to sin. He turns away. He turns aside. God turned His back on His Son. Because He is holy, He cannot look upon, tolerate, approve of sin. The Father abandoned Jesus on the cross because Jesus had taken upon Himself, Isaiah 53, our transgressions, our iniquities. Romans 4.25, He was delivered up for our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3, He died for our sins. Galatians 3.13, He became a curse for us on the tree. And so God the Father forsook Him. Now here, it's important to note that the separation occurred in the relationship and not in essence. It was a relational separation, not an essential, excuse me for this word, ontological uh, separation, essential separation. Now let me explain this, and I've got to kind of go into my testimony. You know, Andrew started it, so I might as well end it. Um, you know, growing up, I was just a rotten son. I was just, I was good to like, Third grade. I'm just kidding. Yeah, like eighth grade, ninth grade, I was a good, you know, fresh off the boat Korean kid, you know, obeying mom and dad. And around ninth grade, I blamed my friends. They blamed me. You know, well, no in heaven whose fault it is. But I made a wrong turn, and I just, you know, just got just angry boy, just angry young man, embittered, selfish, just prideful, and I just went full blatant, headlong into sin, and I was out of control. And until like 9th, 10th grade, I feared my dad. But starting 10th grade, I no longer feared him. So I would blatantly rebel against him. And so by junior and senior year, I was so out of control that my dad like literally gave up on me. I mean, you know, I, my memory is kind of clouded. You know, the whole you know high school years are pretty pretty dull for me memory wise but I think he actually disowned me several times 
like, James, like, you're no longer my son. How can you do these things? How can you say these things? I'm like, Dad, what do you mean? I work Korean blood. You know, I'm a shin. I'm born into your family. You can't, right? But I understood that the forsaking of, is not in the essential sense, but in the relational sense. I'm no longer going to treat you like my son. Do not call me dad any longer. Do not expect to be treated like a son because you have crossed the line so many times and you have crossed the final line that should not be crossed that you've dishonored me in such a way, disrespected me, that you are no longer my son. Well, we reconciled you know, a few years ago, so it's all good. But that is what's happening here. It, the, the separation wasn't in the essential nature. God cannot disown Himself. But for a while, our Lord did experience separation in terms of His intimate fellowship with the Father. Every time in the Gospels, our Lord addressed God as my Father or the Father. Only one time in the Gospels did Jesus say, My God, my God. He could not say Father. And that's right here in verse 46. He does not say, My Father, my Father. Why have you forsaken me? Because God forsook him. He was no longer his Father. So you can only use a generic term. Eloi, Eloi. My God, my God. I believe the Lord's greatest pain on the cross is experienced here. Our Lord writhed in anguish, not from the lacerations on His back, or the thorns that still pierced His head, or the nails that held Him to the cross, but from the incomparably painful loss of fellowship with His Heavenly Father. Those physical pains paled in comparison to the greatest pain of separation from His Father. It was for the first and only time in all eternity that He was utterly alone. And this is what He dreaded in Gethsemane. Remember in the Olive Press, the Olive Garden near the Olive Press, in Mount, Mount, uh, Mount Olivet, where He cried out to the Father and He said, Can this cup be taken from Me? And He sweated drops of blood because He was so... Uh, in, in, in anxiety and sorrow and grief over the cross, was he dreading the physical pain, the physical torture of the cross? Other men faced the cross with courage and valor. Was our Lord a coward? A thousand times no. What he dreaded was the separation from the Father whom he loved. And we see that in the Old Testament in Psalm 51. King David, a man after God's own heart, after he had sinned with Bathsheba, after he murdered her, her husband, and he is confronted by Nathan, rebuked of his sin, in utter hum, humble brokenness, he goes to God in prayer, and he cries out, Do not cast me from your presence. That's his prayer. Take my kingdom. Take all my money. Take my houses. Take my family. Oh God, but don't take this one thing. Do not take from me your presence. David was saying, I can endure any loss, any pain, any grief, except for one. If you left me, I could not endure it. If you forsook me, that was David's fear. This is Christ's experience. How much more was it painful for Christ? God's one and only Son who enjoyed the most sweet fellowship with Him to be separate, separated from Him. As the people heard Christ cry out, they were still oblivious to the significance of what was happening. Verse 47, when some of those were standing there, they said, He's calling Elijah. Someone got a sponge, gave him some wine vinegar. Christ refused. Verse 50, as the crowds were waiting, Jesus cried out again in a loud voice. He gave up His Spirit. The emphasis that I want to point out is, I want to emphasize that Jesus cried out in a loud voice. That He had strength within Him for, to, 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 for life. It tells us that our Lord did not gradually 
fade away, his life ebbing little by little until it was gone. Luke records the last words of Christ. Luke 23:46. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he yielded it up. He let it go. He sent it away. And here is the third miracle. Christ's voluntary death. Christ's voluntary death. No one took his life. No one took his life. He's not a victim here. He gave it up. All of us, we cling to life. To our last breath with every power, with every strength we have. We'll hold on and fight whatever is trying to take, death, take our lives from us. If it's cancer, if it's heart disease, if it's old age, or if it's someone else, we'll hold on to life with our, every ounce of strength we have left. But we're all victims. It'll be taken from us, but not our Lord. No one took His life. He yielded it up. He sent it away. He voluntarily gave His life for on behalf of our sins. John 10.18 No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. That's why John 19.30 He didn't die until He said it is finished. It is finished. My job is done. Task is complete. Mission accomplished. And then He gave His life. We can't do that. We can't will our death. Right? It's a miracle. Only God could do this. First miracle was darkness. Second miracle was divine separation. Third miracle was the voluntary death. Then we see the fourth miracle, verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain is torn. Fourth miracle. The temple here refers not to the whole temple, but to the inner sanctuary, the holy of holies. This is the most holy place where God and His glory symbolically dwelt. No one could enter into this place except for the high priest once a year. And he would do so after he prayed over the sins of Israel laying his hands on a goat. After he did that, they would send this goat out into the wilderness to be lost forever. That's where we get the term scapegoat. All the sins of Israel be laid upon this goat, lost forever, signifying the sins of Israel being atoned for by the sacrifice of the Lamb. And then the high priest would lay his hands on a sacrifice and confess his own sins. And after ritual of cleaning and and purification and prayer, he would enter into the most holy place, into the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, only once a year on Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, to, to pray for the sins of Israel. Now, just in case there was sin hidden in his heart, they would tie a rope around his ankle and several guys would wait for him outside. Because if there was sin in his heart, he would enter and he would die on the spot. And then what are they to do? You go get him. No, I'm not going to go get him. You go get him. And we can't get him. we got to wait a whole year to go get him. Right? So they tied a rope around him. So if they heard a thud, they will pull him out. What separated this most holy place from just a regular holy place was this thick curtain. Soon as Christ voluntarily gave his life, the curtain was torn and important top to bottom. It wasn't torn bottom to top. No man, through his works righteousness, through his morality, through his goodness said, I'm good, and he tore the veil, entered and didn't die. No. The initiation of salvation came from God. God is the one who tore that veil because of his son's perfect sacrifice. And by that tearing of the veil, God was saying, check has sufficient funds. The credit card is approved. Right? The sacrifice is accepted. It's God's way of saying, Jesus' sacrifice is acceptable to forgive the sins of man. 
It fulfills all the demands of the law. Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 10, 11, and 12, how the old covenant, day after day, priest stands and performs his religious duties. He offers the same sacrifices every day, which can really never take away sins. But Jesus has offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. And therefore, verse 19, we have confidence as brothers and sisters, as Christians, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is His body. Therefore, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Because Christ died, perfect sacrifice, curtain is torn. Right of Hebrews says, let us enter with boldness and confidence because of Christ. The veil is torn in two. And then the next miracle, verse 53. There was a great earthquake, rocks split open, tombs broke open, and incredibly, bodies of many saints who had died were raised to life. Verse 53, they came out of the tombs. And after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And this is a very mysterious miracle, difficult to comprehend, difficult to understand. My humble perspective on this verse is this, that these were Old Testament saints who were alive during the incarnation, incarnational ministry of Jesus Christ. And while He was on the earth teaching and performing miracles, these men and women trusted in Christ. So they were caught in a time warp because they were Old Testament saints looking ahead to the reward. But because Jesus came on earth while they were alive, they were semi-New Covenant believers as well. And they trusted in Christ. So they were caught in somewhat of a time warp. And they were like Simeon. They were like Annas. God had promised Simeon he would see salvation with his own eyes. Remember that? And Annas as well. But during Christ's incarnational ministry, they died. And when Christ died, that power was so great. The miracle was so powerful that immediately they rose from the grave. And they were in glorified bodies, broke out of the tombs, and walked around Jerusalem. That's the miracle. What's the significance for us? It's the significance is that it's a prototype of what will happen to all of us, to true Christians. That's what Marcus said, wasn't it? That yes, we believe in Christ's resurrection. What does that mean? That spiritually we're raised as well. What does that mean? It means that, that for Christians, death is a foreign experience. Christians, death is a foreign experience. John 7, Christ said, Christians will never see nor taste death. We see people die. We, we see and second, in a secondary way experience the, the coldness, the, the sting, the pain of death. But for Christians, we'll never personally taste it. We'll never know the bitter taste of death. The idea is, in the twinkling of an eye, with that same breath, Christians, to be apart from the body is to be present with Christ. So, on our deathbed, we will breathe our last breath. And the next breath will be with Christ in glorified bodies. Right? Our heart will not skip a beat. It will beat for the last time. And that second later, we'll be with the Lord will never experience being separated from God. Experience the coldness of death because resurrection awaits all true Christians. This is what this miracle points to. And then the final miracle. The final miracle, verse 54. What I believe is the greatest miracle. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that, that, all that had happened. 
They were terrified. And Centurion was an army officer in charge of a hundred men. No doubt, this centurion and the soldiers were in charge of Christ ever since the Praetorium. No doubt that this officer and his men were the ones tormenting Christ, persecuting Him, were mocking Him, were the ones who punched Him, spat on Him, put the crown of thorns on His head, you know, mockingly praised and worshipped Him. They were the ones that pierced His side. They were the ones that drove the nails in His hands and His feet. And yet, when they saw the supernatural darkness, when they saw the integrity of our Lord, the dignity and the manner in which He died, when they experienced and felt the earthquake, the trembling of the ground beneath them, Matthew said, they were terrified. They were trembling as well. The Greek word is seismos. There was an earthquake outside. There was an earthquake going within. They were shaking they were terrified. It refers to an extreme fright, a kind of panic. And this is how they responded. Verse 54, The centurion and the soldiers exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. They confessed with their mouths, Surely he was the Son of God. The testimony by these men by the centurion, the soldiers, is clearly a confession of faith. Confession of faith. Why? He was a son of God. After the declaration, in Luke 23, 47, it says that these soldiers went away and they began to praise God. And consider what a dramatic change that had occurred. A few hours ago, they were beating Him. They hated Him. They were persecuting Him. They were laughing at Him. And then, the dramatic change in their hearts of being terrified, of confessing He was the Son of God and praising God themselves. Such a drastic change. They have to be fruits of salvation. This is the sixth and final miracle of God on Calvary. The salvation of Jesus' tormentors. The salvation of Jesus' tormentors. This is, to me, the greatest miracle. This is God's miracle in answer to the prayer of Christ. In Luke 23, 34, as He was being crucified, remember? Our, Jesus was, our Lord was praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. He went to God the Father and said, God, Father, forgive these men, for they don't know what they're doing. God heard His Son's prayer and answered it by forgiving the sins of these men. And this to me is, the, is God's greatest miracle. The greatest miracle that occurred on Calvary is not the divine darkness, not the separation, not the voluntary death, not the tearing of the curtain, not even the resurrection of Old Testament saints. The greatest miracle is the salvation of, the, of lost and dead sinners. This to me is the most unbelievable. That God would save the men who beat His Son. He would save the men who spat on Him, mocked Him, and crucified Him. To me, this is the most amazing miracle on Calvary. One moment, they looked up and they saw a delusional man, a pathetic man, uh, being crucified on a cross. The next moment, God opened their eyes and they saw the Son of God. They saw Christ in all His glory and all His holiness and beauty. God's greatest miracle. Three final thoughts for everyone. First of all, what is your view of the man on the cross? Honestly, by your life, what is your view? Do you see him as a lunatic? As a fool? As a common criminal? Do you see him as a moral teacher? As a good man? where a, a sad tragedy fell upon him? Do you see him maybe as someone who deserves to be punished and die in this way? Know that 
someone is praying for you that God will forgive you of your sins for you don't know who this man is. You don't know his true identity. Do you see yourself maybe too sinful to come to Christ? James, I would love to be a Christian. I would love to have my sins forgiven. But my heart's so cold. I've committed so many sins. I'm so far away. I can't follow Christ now. Be encouraged. If God is willing to save, and God indeed indeed saved the man who crucified his own son, spat on his own son, murdered him, there is hope for you. There is promise of Christ extended to you. God is saying, if I can have grace enough for men like this, there is room in my heart for you. It should be an encouragement to you to confess your sins, to look at Christ again with new eyes and repent and confess, yes, He is the Son of God. I will live for Him. Secondly, for believers here, what is your testimony? What is your testimony? As you look at Calvary, who do you identify with? Who do you see yourself? In what group? I think we think of ourselves too highly. And therefore, our cherishing of Christ, our cherishing of salvation is diminished. We don't value our faith in Christ and we don't value the miracle of our salvation because we think of ourselves as little sinners, not as sinners as we actually are. There's that old spiritual song, Were you there when they crucified the Lord? Yes, you you were there. And I was there. That song, another song goes, Behold him there on the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. I was there. What was I doing? I hear my voice mocking Christ. I hear my voice insulting the Lord. I see myself crucifying Him, murdering Him. Our sins put Christ on the cross. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a good person? Or do you see yourself as one of these soldiers who took an active part on the murder of Christ? For all of us actively sinned and with every sin we participated in the death of Christ. And then final one is encouragement as we pray for the lost and evangelize to our loved ones. We might get discouraged praying for our parents, praying for our siblings, praying for our good friends or co-workers, and we think to ourselves, I've prayed for so long. Every year that goes by, it seems like their hearts are getting harder. Opportunities for the gospel is decreasing. And their ears are becoming more and more closed to the gospel message. And you're getting discouraged and praying for them and losing hope. Well, do not lose hope. Instead, pray this prayer that Christ prayed. Pray this prayer for for your loved ones. Father, forgive my mom, forgive my dad, forgive my brother or sister, for they don't know what they're doing. They're committing the sin that Paul committed in 1 Timothy 1, 12-14. The sin of acting in ignorance and unbelief. They just don't know. Keep praying this prayer. And may God hear your cries and answer you and perform a miracle and save your loved ones and your family. My dad was telling me how for 62 years he lived as an atheist. He was telling me he never prayed. And he's telling me how now he's praying. He's praying with mom, praying at home, and he's reading the scriptures. And he said all those years as an atheist, he never saw the beauty of Christ, the beauty and the holiness and the glory of Christianity. And now he sees it, and he said to me how sweet it is to know Jesus Christ. And he believes and he knows that as he continues to study the scriptures, his assurance 
would only grow. Well, to me, that's a miracle because uh, I prayed for him. Many of you have prayed for him. That Father, that our God would forgive my dad for he doesn't know what he's doing. And God answered our cries. May God answer your prayers for your loved ones. And when you lose hope, may you go to Matthew 27, verse 54, and look again at this centurion and these soldiers and be encouraged to persevere in prayer. Let's pray. Oh God, we do, we are just humbled before the cross. We behold and we wonder what manner of love is this that you would give your son, your beloved son, for your enemies. For once, we were all in the same boat. We were rebelling against you boasting of ourselves, boasting of sin, boasting of our righteousness, and telling you we didn't need you, for we were okay, we were fine, everything was at peace. And yet, Lord, you, you, thought, you saw through our pretense. You saw through our outward veneer of righteousness and saw that there were only dead men's bones, that there was corruptness and decay, and only sin in our hearts, pride in our hearts. And yet, instead of in your being completely just to, to judge us, instead you had mercy upon us. You had pity. You had compassion. And you called us by name. Lord, we know that someone was praying for us. And you forgave us because we didn't know what we were doing. Oh Lord, we pray again that prayer. And we pray that you will save many and you will be glorified by the miracle of salvation. And therefore, Christians, Lord, we would cherish Christ. Cherish Christ above all, above anything in this world, because of the salvation we have in you. Because the price that was paid to forgive us of our sins. Though it was free to us, it wasn't free for your son, it wasn't free for you. So may we cherish it above all things, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.